And last week, we looked at why believe in God. And we examined some rational reasons, you know, for belief in God. Does the creation suggest there's a God? Uh, what about science? And how does that interact? And even from a philosophical perspective, and we looked at a host of reasons why it's rational to believe in God's existence. And at the same time, we said not only are there rational reasons, but there are existential ones. People who've encountered God, who've had their lives changed as well. And you heard from Michael Seacrest talking about his encounter with God as well. Today, week two, we're asking the question, why believe in truth? It's a very important question for us to ask. We'll explore that. And to look ahead next week, why believe in the Christian faith? Maybe you believe in God. Okay, perhaps there's a truth, but why say Christianity has a corner on the market? And then finally in week four, can I believe and still have doubts? And my goal for this whole series is there are some people for whom uh, faith, and especially the Christian faith, is a very intellectual exercise. And you have a lot of information. You believe very clear doctrines. But you may not be walking intimately with a God that you can so clearly articulate. And I'm hoping to move you along the spectrum from just an intellectual belief to something more experiential as well. For others, it's simply experiential, existential. I, I just believe there's a God. I believe in the Christian faith. I can't give you a lot of reasons why except for I've just experienced them. But I want you to have some more rational uh, equipping for why that's the case. And some of you may just be skeptical. <clears throat> Maybe you don't believe in there's, a, there's a God, believe there's truth, whatever the case may be. And I'm hoping, since you're here, that you're at least open to considering those possibilities. I want to give you some things to consider as you uh, continue on your journey. So that's, that's sort of where, where we've been and where we're headed, at least I hope. Um, so today, why believe in truth? And the scripture we're going to be looking at is in the book of Genesis in chapter 1. <clears throat> in front of you there's a, a black bible and all of you will have an easy win finding genesis it's the first book of the bible i still haven't looked at the page number but i suspect it's very low uh, just open up to the first book uh, of genesis last week you looked at chapter one the very beginning of it now we're going to just use the final verses as our text and we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. And uh, here's what we read there. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of God. 
Well, let's talk about truth today, PowerPoint, and uh, talk first of all about the problem of absolutes. There's a problem associated with saying that there is a truth, uh, and let's talk about that problem. Let's cut right to the chase. If you suggest, as we are, that in fact there are absolutes in terms of right and wrong that are universal and objective across all cultures in all time that apply equally, that comes across as extremely judgmental and very, very narrow to, to, to most people. Should your behavior, for example, fall into the wrong category, right and wrong, then you feel at best an outcast or not valued or misunderstood. And at worst, probably vilified or hated. However, avoiding the reality of absolutes presents a significant dilemma. So I'm saying I realize when you say there's truth that we're kind of drawing a line in the sand. If you're not on, on one side, you say that doesn't seem, seem just or it seems very judgmental. On the other hand, it's very difficult to, uh, to avoid the reality of absolutes. Uh, rejecting the notion that an absolute truth exists does lead to a couple of conundrums. For one, it's internally inconsistent to make a statement rejecting absolutes without, in fact, making an absolute statement. PowerPoint, see? It's so obvious when you look at it. So if you're a visual learner today, I'm so sorry. I'll do the best I possibly can. But when you say there is no such thing as absolutes, you see that's an absolute statement, right? It's very hard to avoid making absolute statements about there being non-absolutes. If you say there are absolutes, you're internally consistent, at least, with the very logic of the statement itself. That's one of the conundrums. But second, and I think this is more significant, if, in fact, there are absolutes, or are not absolutes, if you say there are no absolutes, then it begs the question, how do you, in fact, determine right or wrong? On what basis do you make a conclusion that this is right and this is wrong if there are no absolutes? So an evolutionist, for example, how would they answer that question? How do we make conclusions about right or wrong? Basically, when you boil it down, our moral sense of what we ought to do comes because we're trying to propagate the species. We're trying to protect ourselves long term. That's really the answer that evolution uh, would give. But there are some cases, if we just observe human behavior, that don't line up with that. This is something that C.S. Lewis points out in his book, Mere Christianity. We all have a sense of what we ought to do. And sometimes we follow the weaker of two impulses. What do I mean by that? Well, I can tell you that when I was a teenager uh, and I, I was in Europe for seven years of my teenage adult, early adult life, um, I was 16 years old, and we went on a trip to Ibiza, it's an island, uh, in the Mediterranean. It uh, sounds very luxurious, it was like 300 other teenagers, it wasn't that fantastic. But the, the, the place was beautiful, there was a storm, lots of stories around that storm, but the one that is relevant to this is that the day afterwards, when everyone is exploring on the coral rocks, everything, the, uh, the ocean swept in two girls. And, uh, and, and they were uh, just shredded by the coral and bobbing up and down, getting perilously close to a place where the water would dash them against the rocks and that would be the end of it. Some of us saw this uh, happening 
And uh, they were saying, don't come in after us. You know, you're going to die, that, that kind of thing as well. Well, one of my friends that I was next to didn't even think about it, just jumped in to rescue and save them. And uh, he, uh, it took about three guys, because of the, et cetera. They, they ended up surviving. Um, they were, you know, injured and that, that kind of thing as well. I didn't jump in after them, okay? My friend did. Now, the week, if you're just an evolutionist standpoint on this thing, why did he feel compelled to jump in at risk of his own life for people he didn't even know? That's, that doesn't make any sense. And furthermore, why afterwards did I feel like a coward for not jumping in? If there's no such thing as a sense of ought with moral obligation. That's at least what Lewis would, would argue about. There's a reason why we feel this. See, there's no explanation, really logically, for the evolutionist when you carry it to its logical conclusion. At least that's how it would seem. That's his argument. And it seems to make sense to me as well. We put our own lives at risk to rescue a stranger. <clears throat> if we're simply evolutionary products, <clears throat> it has a less satisfying answer. Now, a sociologist might suggest our moral sensibilities are simply social constructs that allow for functional society. Does this feel like a high school or a college philosophy course? And I'm sorry. Don't worry. We're just building a case here, right? But you're a sociologist. They're just social constructs. Different societies create things that make them functional. And different societies have different ways of creating those functional realities. And that explains one society's sense of moral right and another one's. And they may be different, but there's no objective thing guiding any of them. And who are we to say that one is better than another? But that has its shortcomings as well. How did the society arrive at these conclusions? What is the society using for determining whether those constructs are actually beneficial? But they're actually good. They will point to those standards encroach upon the standards established by another society. And if they do, how do you decide which is better? If, for example, a family from a society of cannibals moves in next door, when I have fallen gravely ill, why the impulse for me to move away from, from, from them or to hold my children close when they're out playing in their yard? I want to protect them. Why is that the case? I'm making an implicit statement about what I think is better. How do you explain that? Most people today, I think generally speaking, are, are morally relativistic, right? There's no, I can't decide that your behavior is good or bad. You just be who you want to be. And I'm not going to make any statements about whether that's good or bad. And yet, the same individuals who say that possess strong moral convictions about right and wrong in all kinds of areas. Sexuality, you know, power, justice, where does this come from? Where does your sense of intolerance come from? Why would you even consider that? Something that somebody says is right or wrong. In our contemporary context, that's largely determined. How? How do we determine right or wrong? I would suggest probably in, in the era that we breathe, it's autonomy, right? Individual rights, what I feel is right for myself. Self-determination. That's the final authority. And this becomes an authority issue. If you're willing to concede, yes, there might be a right or wrong, then where do you get your sense of authority from? Where do you make the appeal for the definition of right or wrong? And I hope you see that at least consider evolution, secular humanism, evolution doesn't offer a satisfying answer at the end of the day. 
At least it would appear to be the case. Feelings, culture, functionality, they all seem to fall short. I draw a lot of my, my thoughts uh, from Tim Keller, who's a pastor in Manhattan, contemporary pastor in Manhattan. Anybody been to Manhattan? Think that's a morally upright kind of community that sticks with traditional values and that kind of thing? He, uh, one of the reasons I think he, he's so great, um, he's a good thinker, he's a good writer, he dialogues with contemporary thoughts, and one of his practices after his messages is to just let people ask questions. So for an hour uh, after the service, you know, if you want to stick around, you can ask him questions. I, I, I fear doing that because I know so few answers, <laughs> but he, he knows, seems to have intelligent things to say. Um, so anyway... He, he talks here about what, what he gets on those Sunday services. Um, he says, one of the most frequent statements I, I hear is, every person has to define right and wrong for him or herself. I always respond to the speakers by asking, is there anyone in the world right now doing things you believe they should stop doing, no matter where they, what they personally believe about the correctness of their, their behavior? Is there anything, that anything happening that you think somebody should stop? No matter what they personally believe about their own behavior. Does that make sense? So he says, uh, invariably people say yes. And I ask, doesn't that mean that you do believe there's some kind of moral reality that is there that is not defined by us, that must be abided by regardless of what a person feels or thinks? And he doesn't get too many responses from that because it's difficult to avoid. So at the end of the day, we have this sense of what we ought to do, a deep-seated sense of moral obligation. We all have it, a sense of what I ought to do. And because of that, we can consider the existence of a truth that's telling us right or wrong. A.N. Wilson, who was an Oxford graduate in the 70s, he abandoned his faith for atheism. In the 80s, he wrote a book called Against Religion, Why We Should Try to Live Without It. He was a colleague and a friend of Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hutchins. Some of you probably recognize those names. And he proudly declared that there is no God. And yet later, he announced his return to faith in God. He was very devoutly atheist. First uh, a Christian, then an atheist, and now he returned. And in his writings explaining why he made the shift, he was unsettled by the inability of modern secularism to establish a moral compass. He said, when I lived in that space, there was no, there's no satisfying answer for what I should do, right or wrong. So we believe that that moral comp compass does exist and is found in the scriptures. And rooted in texts like Genesis 1, where we read that in the beginning, God made things good. Genesis 1, 1 through 3, starts with a God who spoke creation into being by the power of his word. He made the world and he sustains it. He's intimately involved with creation. In fact, he created man and woman to rule over his creation as his representatives. And in verse 26, we've already looked at this. He says, let's make a man in our own image. In our likeness, let them rule over the fish of the sea. So he created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blesses them. He tells them to be fruitful, to fill the earth and subdue it. And the creation account is summed up there in verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. In the Hebrew, tov, tov, it repeats it twice. 
Here's the first time we see a repeated word and what the Hebrew culture would do is they would repeat a word to emphasize, right, bold, italics, larger font with a highlight. It wasn't just good. It was good, good. Here at the end of creation, God looks at it and says, it is good, good. It's really good. He's proud of his creation. And that statement, good, is a moral statement. He says, here is a creation that has been created good uh my my daughter who used to make cake pops a lot and she's very critical of them always she had a design in mind and it never seemed to measure up we were satisfied with consuming them all the time but not so here right god has a design in mind and it's great and he's making a value statement about creation the goodness of creation reflects a god who is himself good Here's a character statement, a value statement. I have made a creation that reflects my own goodness and is made to reflect my goodness in all that is done. There in the garden, God creates a structure where everything's in right order. There is shalom. That's an important word in the Old Testament as well. Wholeness, peace. Not a fake kind of peace, but complete wholeness. Nothing is wrong. And in these first chapters, we see God establishing the proper context for our thriving. He's created a good creation. This is what it looks like to flourish in that creation. He explains what it means to be human, to create, to order, and to structure, and to rule, to dwell with God. He gives a design for sexuality, a design for use of power, a design for human dignity and value, and he establishes boundaries for their flourishing if you know the story, he sets a tree in the middle of the garden, a couple, and he gives a warning about this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of its fruit. Now, they're given all kinds of things, this entire wonderful paradise. He says, just one thing, you know, avoid. And of course, you think about that one thing to avoid all the time. Not all the stuff that's there that's fantastic and, and good. And so when they eat of it, if you know, there's negative consequences. There's a breaking of shalom on every single level. And if you remember, Satan in the biblical narrative comes and whispers in their ears and says, if you take it, you'll be like God. And that seems to be something that's appealing to Adam and Eve. They basically want to create their own reality. They want to define truth for themselves. They want to be God. God was the one who created and said, this is what it looks like to operate and function good, good. If you go outside of that, there's death, there's destruction, there's disruption. Satan comes and says, he doesn't know what he's talking about. You can do a better job than he can. So they take and they eat and everything is broken. Truth now can be redefined and made in our own image. That's the story of mankind after the fall. And for those who do embrace this biblical storyline then it explains why things go amiss it establishes a basis as well for believing in a truth that we're trying to line up with and get back to as it were it gives us a reason to pursue the reestablishment of shalom in our own lives in communities all around the world and that's also why jesus is such a big deal by the way jesus said the truth will set you free in john eight thirty two. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So Jesus 
claims that there is a truth to be known and that this knowledge is actually the pathway to freedom. If you want to be free, he says, you ultimately cannot know it apart from knowing me. I embody truth. So for him, the presumption that there is a truth is not constrictive in the least. On the contrary, not walking in its ways actually leads to bondage, to something incomplete, out of order, less than what is possible. And if you're unconvinced, skeptical this morning, I'm glad you're here. That's fantastic. Or maybe if you're not behaving or believing in a way lining up with this understanding of truth, it hardly feels like freedom. I get that. It feels, as we said earlier, like narrow-mindedness or being out of touch with the times or hateful. And I believe at least in part that's rooted in a miscommunication, a misunderstanding, a misappropriation of the gospel. The gospel, the good news by its very nature, literally takes out any self-righteousness often associated with truth claims. When you talk about the truth, typically it's people who are using it to pound home how awful you are and how far away you are from it. But people who actually understand this truth that Jesus talks about, on the deepest of level, the way it was intended, that self-righteous nature that comes out of you that says, I've got the truth and you don't, is just sucked out <laughs> by the gospel itself. Because the very rootedness of the gospel is in the notion that you are not good enough and you will never measure up, ever. And the only reason that you've tasted this goodness is because there was a Christ who knew the truth, who pursued you, who opened up your eyes, to which you responded by no works of your own, and he has rescued you, and now you're in relationship with him. See, that's grace. That's the goodness of a gospel. It says you cannot possibly earn that status. And if you really understand that, you're in dialogue and you get that, it just takes all the superiority out of you. All of it. So to the extent you're starting to feel superior, like the church lady of the 1980s <laughs> in Saturday Night Live, you don't get it. You don't understand the gospel. Not at the depth that you're called to. It just pulls out superiority. Now I realize saying that there's a truth has in and of itself an adverse reaction if you're denying that. But it shouldn't come from the people who say that they understand it according to Jesus. Unfortunately, that's frankly where it comes from most of the time. People who say they've got it, who use it like a bludgeon to hammer others who don't. And I would suggest you haven't really encountered the truth on the level that you're supposed to. You know, Peter, who said in 1 Peter 3.15, you know, be prepared to have a reason for the hope that you have. We started with that verse. Why do you believe? When you share, do it with gentleness and respect. He's the same guy who wrote later in that book, judgment begins with the house of God. So if you're going to be all judgy, you're the first person stepping up to the plate, church. It does begin with you. It also doesn't mean, however, that there's no, judge, there's no saying what's right or wrong. It just starts there with us who say we've got the truth. We're such great lawyers for ourselves, aren't we? And we're such good judges of others. We're wonderful. But get the gavel in our hand when it comes to other people's sins. And defend ourselves great, right, when it comes to our own. The gospel reverses that, I believe. It makes us stand in a place where we're extremely critical of ourselves. And recognize how far we, how far we fall short of the glory of God. And believing the best about others. Dignifying them. Wanting what's best for them. Our starting point is always humility and grace. 
and generosity and humility, yet we still care very much about truth. There is something to which we are held accountable. And although we may not measure up, we still have a target. And we call others to that target because our presumption is that this is how we're designed to flourish. This is how you really taste and know and see that God is good is by living in the ways that he's revealed himself through truth. That's our desire. I hope you understand that if you're not somebody who embraces that. We believe that the standards given in God's word have been given by a good God who knows how we operate best. And Jesus, who embodies the truth, will one day judge the world by it. So we subject ourselves to his will and in good faith call others to that same subjection. Not just because God said it, so do it. But because God has a good thing that he's designed us to follow. I think there's a tension in communicating that there's a truth while not alienating, disenfranchising, or demonizing others who disagree. I think there's a tension, right? I know there's a tension there. How do you do this? How do you take something when you say it's true and maybe somebody's not embracing that and, and bring that to them in a way that even if it's going to be received as something not, not good, you, you know it is. I, I think it's very, very hard to do. Where would you look for some examples of that? How about Jesus? Just real, real briefly, just consider. John chapter 4. Jesus encounters a woman in Samaria. Already, I mean, a lot of stuff happening there. There were some ethnic tensions between the Jews and the Samaritans that went back hundreds of years. And Jesus is beginning to shatter those. He approaches this woman, which is already a huge cultural barrier. He knows that she's looking for some water, but not the kind of water that we sang about where you're just, uh, earlier, just drinking to slake your thirst. But there's a deep spiritual thirst that she has. And as he talks with her, it comes out, he tells her, you've been married five times. And the person you're living with now is not your husband. So here's Jesus who embodies the truth. We see him coming to a person who's definitely outside, on a behavior standpoint, the way that she should be living, right? What does he do? He approaches her. He dignifies her. He gives her water. He humanizes her. He recognizes that even her sin, and he knows it, and he gives her water. And what it does is it kind of unnerves her a little bit because most people would automatically say, you're a bad person. Let me pick up a stone and throw it at you and kill you. And Jesus says, come near. I know you have a deeper thirst. And that's why you've been doing these things. So come and drink. Uh, it happens more than once in John. John chapter 8, there's a woman caught in adultery and people do have the stones. They're ready to pick them up and throw them at her. And you know that story probably. Jesus shows up on the scene and begins riding in the sand and one by one they leave the oldest first. He looks up, nobody's around. I mean, no, it doesn't, we don't know what he was riding. I, I've always considered that maybe it's the sins of individuals as they go one by one and recognize that they have no basis to which condemn this person. So Jesus says the same thing. Woman, who's condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. You see the truth there. He, again, dignifies this person. There's no condemnation. But then he says, now go and leave your life of sin. You aren't walking in freedom of the truth unless you walk in line with it. It's a both and here. 
Jesus seemed to have some way of approaching people that dignified them while challenging to live out the way God had designed them to live. John chapter 9, the man is born blind. His disciples say, who sinned, this, this man or his parents? Neither, Jesus says. This happened so that God would be glorified. And that man becomes an object lesson for the spiritually blind people of the day who were the truth holders. You know that, right? The Pharisees. They held the truth. They knew it better than anybody else. And they were using it improperly, Jesus said. And this man, who you think was born in sin, now has sight. He restores his sight. And the people who are supposed to see so clearly don't. And he stands in judgment against them. So we need to be careful if we think we hold the truth that we're not the Pharisees. John chapter 10, Jesus talks about the truth again. The good shepherd, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they have, may have life and have it to the full. He says multiple times there, I tell you the truth. I have come that you may have life full life. That is why he came. So I've gotten kind of, you know, some hopefully intellectual reasons and slowly spilling over into the existential, the, the practical reasons. These kind of things, God, God is still interacting with people and drawing them from, from even a sense of, I have to be a certain way in order to be accepted by God. The gospel says, I accept you as you are, but I won't leave you that way. You need to come to me and I begin doing things. And it's a good life. It's life to the full. Terry Bortz is going to share her own interaction with that in, in her life as well. This isn't just old, dusty, 2,000-year-old stories. These are living, living examples of God's, God's grace and truth. Okay. So picture a family where you're taken care of. You're fed, you're housed, you're educated. But no one ever says, I love you. No one ever hugs you. There's certainly no unconditional love, and there's certainly no grace. Now picture a church that teaches you you have to work your way to heaven. You have to perform. You have to do good works. And boy, your good works better outweigh your bad. And no grace. So what do you get? You get someone who looks pretty good on the outside because they are trying so hard to be good, to be perfect. But on the inside, they are dying um, for the approval and the love that they didn't get. So um, this is something that I've been struggling with my whole life. And at age 20, God <laughs> intervened after sitting in church for 20 years and never once hearing the gospel. My brother-in-law, who was a Messianic Jew, told me it was possible to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross to pay the price for my sins, and there was grace, and there was forgiveness, and there was unconditional love, and I thought he was crazy. I, could, I just couldn't, I couldn't grasp it. And so over the course of about six years, he showed me things in the Bible, which of course I had never read. And I started to think, could it, could it be true? And after six years, I went to see Billy Graham. He came to Cincinnati and he presented the gospel so clearly and so simply that yes, Jesus died on the cross for me. He took my place. He loves me unconditionally, and there's grace and forgiveness. And I had to respond. However, <laughs> I did not get healed of this perfectionism and control freakishness, um, you know, in, a, in an instant. For 10 years, I didn't tell anybody outside the church that I was a believer. And why? Because I believed two lies. One, you might reject me. 
and two, you might ask me a question I can't answer. And for a perfectionist, that would be the worst thing ever. So God started to, to do some things in my life to break this self-reliance and make me rely on him. I had a miscarriage. I went through a divorce. I was a single mom. I had to go to work with three young kids um, because of the divorce. And that's when God led me to Athletes in Action, which is the sports ministry of Campus Crusade. And I started again to learn truth that would replace the lies. I learned about the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, never leave your first love, and how to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. But when you're trying to be perfect and you're living for the praise of people and you're a control freak, that really can wear on you after a while. <clears throat> and in, two, <clears throat> excuse me, in 2009, I had what I call a meltdown. I was going to leave Athletes in Action. I, I, was, I was a mess. And they made me take a sabbatical. They poured grace on me. They made me take a sabbatical. I got the help I needed to grieve some of the hurts from my past. And God slowly started to break that perfectionism and that, that need to control. So then the big question became, so what? So what if I can't answer your questions? So what if you reject me? So what if you don't like the real me? Didn't matter anymore because God loves me unconditionally. And now I live for the glory of God and not the praise of people. And replacing the truth, replacing lies with the truth is a daily process, believe me. And one of my favorite verses is Colossians 1.22. He has reconciled me to himself through the death of Jesus. As a result, he has brought me into his own presence. I am holy and blameless as I stand before him without a single fault. Praise God. Thanks, Terry. It's a home run. Slam dunk. I appreciate that. You know, this isn't just kind of theory out there. I mean, God changes people's lives. Um, and it's not just an existential encounter. It's, there's rational reasons to believe this as well. And I don't know if some of you maybe come to that rationally. Uh, that, that's okay. Or some are just more encounter-driven. That, that's as well. God uses all kinds of things to bring you into his kingdom, and I think he may be calling you today. If you've never tasted or known that, if you've never known the truth, you know, John chapter 16 says, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. And my appeal to you would be that if you're stumbling somewhere along the way, that, that's okay, dialogue, ask questions. She's happy to not have answers to any question you wanna ask her. <laughs> And I, I, I'll do the best I can. We really don't, don't have any reason to fear. One of the reasons that Labrie was so popular when it came in the 80s with Francis Schaeffer, he operated on the assumption all, all truth is God's truth. If we do have the truth, there's no reason not to ask questions. It's okay. I mean, God's truth will, will, will arise. It will, if it's really true, it's true truth, right? That's okay. You can ask those questions uh, so please do, but at the same time, there's something that happens when you say just a small yes to God. It's kind of like we said last week, you begin seeing things differently. You can ask questions a, a long time. There may be a moment we just have to say, okay, God, I'm willing to live in that space where I don't have everything answered, but I'm going I'm to say yes to you. It just seems to shift your perspective enough 
that now you see things radically different. I think that's what God's Spirit can do. I know that's what God's Spirit can do. When he comes, the Spirit, he'll lead you into all truth. There may be, for some of you intellectually stumbling, just as saying, I'm willing to embrace this as, as truth and to move forward. God, ask for God's Spirit to reveal himself to you. C.S. Lewis said, Christianity simply does not make sense until you've faced the sort of facts I've been describing. Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It is after you have realized that there is a real moral law and a power behind the law and that you have broken the law and put yourself wrong with that power. It's after all of this and not a moment sooner that Christianity begins to talk. When you know you are sick, you will listen to the doctor. Maybe, maybe today, if you're willing to admit, I got this sense of what I ought to do and I have not done it. And I sense the guilt and conviction that comes along. Maybe I remember sensing it and now I just don't even care anymore because your, your, your conscience is deadened. If you have that sense, God, nobody is beyond the reach of God. He spoke into creation brought from nothing, all that exists. He can reach into your heart. You're not that big of a barrier <laughs> for him. I'm sorry. And if he's knocking, right, if, he's, if you sense, maybe there's something to this, I would invite you to give that simple yes to Christ. If you know you're at odds with that moral power, then the good news is Jesus himself bore your sins, just like Terry said. He took it on. You can't make yourself right with God. All he says is confess that. And we did some of that earlier on. You know, believe in your heart, God raised him today, confess through mouth, Jesus is Lord. That's the pathway to knowing freedom and not knowing only the one who steals, kills, and destroys, but the one who comes to give you life and life full. And here's what he did. He laid down his life. When we celebrate communion, we're acknowledging that he, he gave his life for you, that he laid his life down at the price of his own. And thinking about those weaker of two impulses, he died for us even when we were enemies of him. And what a good God. Became one of us, laid his life down on our behalf for sinners such as ourselves so that we could know full life. His body that was given, his blood that was shed on our behalf. And we took, on the night when he was betrayed, Brad, and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He wanted us to remember that we are in constant need of him. And that his blood, which was shed for many for the forgiveness of sins, was done because he had us in mind. Those whom he had called and responded, the ones that he was pouring out his love for. But there was a real price given. And I hope today as you take this, and this table is available for all who profess faith in Christ, that you'll remember he is for you. And he laid down his life for you. And that perhaps... Uh, today you get a good sense as well of the truth that he's calling you to live out and if you sense in your heart too I mean that you're not right with God then confess your sins to him and know that you're forgiven if however you've never professed faith in Christ let these elements pass you by but I'd, I'd suggest if you do sense in your heart God yes God's moving me to faith in him don't let this go, day go by without saying yes to Jesus and letting me know so that we can get you ready to receive this and welcome you as a brother or sister in Christ. Don't let this moment pass by.